Well, let's turn to Genesis chapter 29, working our way through the life of Isaac and Jacob. We're talking about how God is fulfilling the promise of bringing a seed crusher, which is the promise of Genesis 3.15, the Messiah who would crush, the serpent crusher, not the seed crusher, serpent crusher. And this morning we're going to take a look at Jacob, who has a problem, and how he responds to that problem. And Jacob's problem is he needs to find a wife. His family wants to send him up north a couple hundred kilometers to grandfather's hometown, Haran, Padan Aram, it's also called. So Jacob has a problem, how to find a wife. And to set the stage for looking at this passage, I want, I want us to stop and just think for a moment about what problem do you have? What problems do you have? Every single person in this room has problems. We've all got problems. And I want you to think about one in particular so that we can make this passage very concrete. We're going to see how Jacob responds to his problem. And then I want you to be thinking about how you are responding to your problem. So think about some particular, specific problem that you have. Maybe it's at work. Maybe the workload is just growing, increasing, and, and you don't see your, your way clear to survive with all that work being put upon you. Or maybe there's some person at your workplace who's causing great difficulty. Maybe it's your, your manager who's causing great pressure, great problems there for you. Or maybe it's just a specific task at work, and you aren't sure how to, how to get traction on it, how to deal with it. So maybe your problem is work-related. Others of you maybe have problem more with family dynamics. Maybe you're having a hard time communicating with your children. Maybe there's somebody in your extended family where walls have come up and the communication's falling apart. Maybe your problem is with family. Maybe you're facing some big decisions. You're, you're pondering a career change. Should you do that? Big ramifications of that. Or maybe it's time to go back to your home country, praying about that or some other location. So maybe you're grappling with problems of making a big, big decision. Or maybe it's health issues. Maybe you're facing some tests and you're concerned and the doctors are concerned and you're wondering what, what's this going to mean. So think about one specific problem that you want to focus on as we look at Genesis chapter 29. Because what we see in this chapter, Genesis 29, is Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, he wants us to think about how are we responding to our problems. What are you doing about your problem? And what we're going to see in Genesis 29 is that there's two very different ways to respond to our problems. Two very different ways. One way is we can respond to our problems by, by relying on ourselves. The other way is we can respond to our problems by relying on God. And in Genesis 29, what we're going to see is as Jacob is seeking to find a wife, he does not rely on God. He's relying on himself. He's depending upon himself to find the wife. It's like he's saying, I've got this one. I can do this. And even though God totally changed Jacob in the previous chapter, chapter 28, which we saw last week. Remember when God revealed himself to Jacob and Jacob was profoundly transformed, but Jacob still has to learn how important it is to rely on God for his problems, for his needs, and for everything. That's what we're going to look at. Now, Jacob is going to learn this lesson in the next few chapters. Ben's preaching on that chapter coming up in a few weeks. It's going to be very encouraging, but he hasn't learned that lesson yet. Some of you maybe haven't learned that lesson yet. 
God has you here this morning to help you learn that lesson. So let's start by asking what happens when Jacob seeks a wife. His parents send him north a couple hundred kilometers to Padan Aram, which is also called Haran. This is Abraham's hometown. They want their boy to marry a hometown girl. And this passage breaks down into three different parts. First, Moses sets the stage for Jacob meeting Rachel in verses 1 through 8. Look at what Moses writes. Verse 1, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Another way of describing the people of Padan Aram, Haran. As he, Jacob, looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is, this is Jacob saying, he said, Behold, it is still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Here's what's going on in these verses. Jacob has traveled from Bethel down south, up north to Badan, Aram, Haran, grandfather Abraham's hometown. Comes to a well. It's covered by a stone. Shepherds are gathered there with their flocks. He asks if they know Laban. Laban is Jacob's mother, Rebekah's brother, which makes him Jacob's uncle. So he asks if they know Laban. They say they do know him. And they say, in fact, right now Laban's daughter, Rachel, is coming out with the sheep. Jacob urges them, go ahead and water your flocks. Um, But they they want to wait until all the flocks are there. And so that, that sets the stage then for Jacob meeting Rachel. And look at verses 9 through 20. Here, Jacob meets Rachel. It's a beautiful story. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And notice what phrase is repeated three times in verse 10. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. What phrase is repeated three times? Mother's brother. Laban was his mother's brother. And I think the point that Moses wants us to be feeling at this this stage in the story is that Jacob has finally met his extended family. Jacob loves his mother, Rebekah, so he loves Rebekah's brother. Jacob has never met them. They've been apart for hundreds of kilometers. And so Jacob's deeply moved, which we see in the next verses. Verse 11, Then Jacob kissed Rachel, And wept aloud, and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father, Laban. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him. 
and kissed him and brought him to his house. Laban, Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are bone, my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So Jacob kissed Rachel, which is a, is a family kind of kiss, not a romantic kind of kiss. Um, and he wept aloud because he was so overwhelmed with, he's here with his extended family, his mother's brother and her family. He's so deeply touched. So he's, he kisses Rachel with a family kiss. He's weeping aloud. Then he tells Rachel who he is. And she is so excited that she runs back to tell her father, Laban. Laban hears he runs back to meet Jacob, embraces him, kisses him, says, stay with us. So Jacob stays there for a month. Keep reading now verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Jacob was working for him. Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, which is a way of saying she was not as attractive. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Here's this beautiful verse now. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. I love that. Okay, so Jacob loves Rachel. He wants to marry Rachel and gladly works for seven years so that he can win the hand of Rachel in marriage. So far, so good. So Moses has set the stage for Jacob and Rachel to meet in verses 1 through 8. He has Jacob meet Rachel in verses 9 through 20. But now look at what happens in verses 21 through 30, where Laban deceives Jacob. Verse 21, Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go in to her for my, my time is completed. Seven years were up. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah, not Rachel. He took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went in to her. Laban gave his female servant Zilba to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Here's what's going on. Into the seven years of working, Rachel says, I've, Rachel says, Jacob says, I've kept my part of the bargain. It's time to marry Rachel. So Laban puts on this big, week-long wedding feast, but then deceives Jacob by bringing him Leah. It's, it's dark. Her face is probably veiled. So Jacob doesn't know it's Leah. And in the morning, Jacob is shocked to see that it's, it's Leah. And he asks Laban why he deceived him. Keep reading in verse 20. Laban said, 
It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Would have been helpful to hear that earlier. (laughs) Complete the week of this one, that is the the week-long wedding festivities, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her, Leah's, week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be his, her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, just one comment. We've, we've mentioned this in the weeks past, but Genesis 2.24 makes it very clear that God's plan for marriage is marriage involves one man and one woman. Monogamy is God's plan for marriage. And throughout the Old Testament, Genesis and other books, we will see things happen, and and the author doesn't say it's right or doesn't say it's wrong, but when it comes to polygamy, we know because of Genesis 2.24, this is not God's original plan. But see, Laban deceives Jacob into marrying Leah. And then because Jacob loves Rachel, he marries Rachel also and works another seven years. So there's the passage. Now the question is, what does Moses want us to learn from this event? Remember that the biblical authors, when they write history, they're not just telling us what happened. They are doing that. This is history. But they choose which events they focus on, and they highlight certain aspects of those events, and they connect those events with each other in such a way that if you look carefully, you'll see they're not just telling us history that happened, they're teaching us truths that we should obey, trust, understand, learn. So what truth does Moses want us to understand from Genesis 29? Careful readers, which is all of us here, right? Careful readers would remember that this story is just very similar to what we read back in Genesis 24 when Abraham sends his servants up to Haran, Padanaram, to uh, find a wife for Isaac. Very similar stories between Genesis 24 and here in Genesis 29. Now, let me briefly recap the story of Genesis 24, just to refresh your memory, and then we'll dig a little more deeply into comparing these stories. So Abraham tells his servants, I want to find a wife for my son Isaac, travel up to my hometown, Padan Aram, to find her. And so the servant travels north, and he comes to a well, okay? Then the servant prays, this is amazing, prays that God would lead him to the woman he's chosen for Isaac. Not only does the servant pray, he asks God for a specific sign. That when the servant asks this woman, whoever she is, for a drink of water, the woman would not only give him a drink of water, she would offer to water all of his camels, which is, I forget the number, but camels drink a lot of water. I'm talking liters and liters and liters here, okay? And so, but the servant says, I ask for a sign that the woman who you've chosen for Isaac, when I ask her to give me water, she would offer to water all of my camels. And before the servant finishes praying, Rebecca is coming to the well. Rebecca. The servant asks her for some water and then watches and waits. Is she the one? 
And she gives him the servant water, and then she says, I'm going to water all your camels also. Is that okay? And the servant falls down on his face and worships God for his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Beautiful story. Then the servant explains to Rebecca who he is, and Rebecca runs to tell her family. And then Laban, okay, remember Rebecca's brother, runs to meet the servant, and the servant is invited to stay with the family. The servant tells them how God has miraculously led him to their family and to Rebekah, that she's the one God has chosen to marry Abraham's son Isaac. And Laban and his father say, well, if it's okay with Rebekah, it's okay with us. Rebekah says, it's okay with me. And so the servant takes Rebekah back down south to Palestine area and Rebekah and Isaac get married. Beautiful story of love and of God's, God's faithfulness. So look at all the similarities now between Genesis 24, the story of Abraham sending a servant, and Genesis 29, the story of Jacob going north. Look at the similarities. We have a chart here. There we go. So here's the chart. Check all these out. So Genesis 24, first of all, the servant goes north to Abraham's family. Similarly, Jacob goes north to Abraham's family. Second, the servant comes to a well. Similarly, Jacob comes to a well. Third, Rebekah comes to the well. Similarly, Rachel comes to the well. You see all this? This is amazing. Fourth, Rebekah runs to tell her family. Rachel runs to tell her family. Fifth, Laban runs to meet the servant. Laban runs to meet Jacob. A lot of running going on here. Sixth, the servant meets Laban. Jacob meets Laban. And then Rebekah marries Isaac, and Rachel marries Jacob. All these similarities. And I think the reason Moses highlights these similarities is because he wants to make the differences in the stories all the more obvious. He wants to show us all these similarities so we will be shocked by the differences that are there between the stories. Look at the differences. Here we go, Genesis 24, first. The servant asks God for help. Jacob does not ask God for help. Not a peep about Jacob praying in this chapter. Second, the servant mentions God's steadfast love three times. God, I'm trusting your steadfast love. Look at what God has done in his steadfast love. I worship you, God, for your steadfast love. Three times the servant mentions God's steadfast love. Jacob never mentions God's steadfast love. Third, when it's clear that Rebekah is God's choice, the servant falls down on his face on the ground and praises God loudly, vocally. But no mention is made of Jacob worshiping God. Fourth, the servant tells Laban how God led him to find Rebekah. Long section in Genesis 24 where the servant recounts the sign, everything he was praying, what God did. So the servant tells Laban what God did in bringing him to Rebekah. Jacob says nothing to Laban about God leading him to find Rachel. And then fifth, the servant returns with a wife for Isaac. Beautiful answered prayer, success story. But Jacob is deceived. Jacob ends up having to stay seven years longer, total of 14 years, and he returns with two wives, 
one of whom he loves more than the other, which, as we will see in the chapters ahead, cause major problems, major disharmony. So what do these similarities and differences show? What, what's Moses' point? What does he want us to walk away with here? And I think he's emphasizing, Moses emphasizes the similarities because he wants us to dwell on the differences, to see the differences, the stark contrast that's there, because the differences show us that Jacob was not relying on God to provide him the wife. He was not relying on God. He was not trusting God to bring him a wife. For all we can see, Jacob thought he had this under control. I mean, think about it. Abraham's servant, it's clear from Genesis 24, he was relying on God. He prays, he asks God for a sign, he's depending upon God, he's relying on God, he's trusting God. And what was the result? God provided a wife for Isaac. Beautiful story. Jacob was not relying on God. Never prays, no worship, no speaking of God's steadfast love and faithfulness, no honoring, glorifying God for what he's done. He's relying on himself. Did not wait on God, did not rely on God, did not trust in God. And what was the result? He was deceived. Ends up marrying two wives, one whom he loves more than the other, major difficulties in their marriage, and he had to work a total of 14 years, seven more than he needed to. So see, the massive difference that comes when you rely on God for your problems and when you don't. Do you see the difference? Now, the point of this, though, is not that if you rely on God for your problems and he's going to make everything easy and smooth and you'll never have any difficulties. Let me say that again. This is so important. That's not the point of this passage. The point is not that if you rely on God, he's going to solve everything and you'll never have any problems again. We see that because of what the rest of the Bible shows. Take Job, for example book of Job. Job was the most righteous man in the whole world. Job was a man who depended upon God, relied on God. We see him regularly praying for his children, devoted to prayer for his children. And God blessed Job by allowing heartbreaking trials to come into his life. Okay, understand that? So Job was depending upon God and trials were still there. Or think about Paul. We've talked about his thorn in the flesh before here. Paul prayed three times that God would remove this difficulty, whatever it was. Three times earnestly Paul prayed. So Paul was depending upon God for this problem. He was relying on God for this problem. And God worked and blessed Paul by allowing the thorn in the flesh to remain. But God poured his love and grace so powerfully into Paul's heart in this trial, that Paul said, this trial is worth it all. If I can have Jesus this close, it's worth it all. But I just want to make sure you don't hear this chapter or me saying that if you, if you depend upon God, if you rely on, on God, you'll never have any problems ever again. That's not what the Bible says. Are we clear on that? Okay, are we clear on that? We may be sobered by it, and that's all right, but we need to be clear about it. So that's, that's not the point. So what is the point? The point is that if we rely on God, 
he will work in astonishing ways. Beautiful ways. He will help us, strengthen us, work in our situations. He may take that problem totally away. Just You're delivered from it. He can do that, right? Or he may allow the problem to stay and so powerfully work in and through you that his glory is shining. As Paul says, you are more than a conqueror in that trial. So when we rely on God, he will always work in astonishing, powerful, beautiful ways in your situation. He promises. He always does. So Genesis 29, Moses wants to teach us the importance of relying on God when we face problems not relying on ourselves. That's the lesson Moses wants us to get. As I was at this point in in studying this passage and thinking through preaching this this morning, I thought, what are some ways we could tell if we were relying on God or relying on ourselves with our problems? So let's ask that question. How can we tell if we are relying on ourselves or on God? And And when I compared Genesis 24 and 29, I found four clues that can tell us. So think about these. First of all, one is, if I am praying about my problem, if I'm taking time where I'm putting everything else aside and seeking God's face about this, saying, Father, look at this situation. Help me. Give me wisdom. Meet me here. If if you're praying about your problem, then you're relying on God. Right? But if if you don't pray about it, Who are you relying on? Yourself. That's one clear clue. If you're praying about it, you're relying on God. Another clue. If, as you're dealing with this problem, you're consciously trusting God, you're thinking about Him, going over His promises, you're leaning on Him, you're depending upon Him, then you are relying on God, obviously. But if you're not thinking about God, if you're thinking about, well, I'm going to do this, that's plan A, and if that doesn't work, I've got plan B, big time, and I've even got plan C here, and then maybe I'll do D if I need to. And so you're just thinking, 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 or worrying, 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 okay? Then you're not relying on God, right? Three, third clue. If when the problem is resolved, you worship God, thank you, Father. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for what you've done. That shows you're relying on him, right? But if when the problem is resolved, you say nothing about God, or if you just say, look at how lucky I am. I'm really lucky here, or something like that. No mention of God, then then you weren't relying on God. Fourth, if when the problem is resolved, I tell others about how God resolved the problem, then that'll show that I was depending upon God, relying upon God. But if I just talk about what I did to resolve the problem, or what others did and no mention of God in resolving the problem, I'm not relying on God. So think about the problem that that I had you think about earlier, the one specific problem. Bring that back into your mind. And now just be really honest. Think about this. Have you been praying about it? Have you been praying about it? Have you been bringing it before the Lord in earnest prayer? Are you consciously relying on God? Are you you leaning on Him? Are you resting in His promises to to give you what you need to deal with this? Are you you relying on Him? If the problem 
was resolved already, did you worship God in response? And if it was resolved already, did you tell others about what God did? Now, if the answer is no to, to these, then that would show that you're not relying on God and you're relying on, on yourself. And, and my guess is that if we're honest, all of us are thinking, I need to rely on God more. I, maybe you are a little bit, but I need, to, I need to rely on God more. Too much of it is like back to me, and you know how that is. I know how that is. You know how that is. We need to rely on God more. And Moses would be very happy if we leave Genesis 29 thinking, I need to rely on God more. He'd be like, yes, they got it. Okay, they got it. So let's ask this next question. Because I was thinking, I need help to rely on God more. So I thought, let's, let's talk about what are some truths from God's word that encourage us to rely on God. If you're not relying on God, you need to be encouraged to rely on God. The truth is, if you saw your situation accurately, if you saw your problem for what it really is, and if you saw God for who he really is, you would be so quick to trust God, so quick to rely on God. But see, if we don't rely on God, it's because we are being blinded somehow to who God is. We're not seeing him very clearly. So I want to give you four truths from God's word that if we take them to heart, we'll be encouraged to rely on, on God. So the first truth is because I'm trusting Jesus, I am standing in God's grace. That's from Romans chapter 5, verse 2. Here's what Paul writes. Through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith, by trusting Jesus, we've obtained access into this grace in which we stand. Here's why this is so important. You might wonder, in light of my sin, like maybe I lost my temper last week. And if I lost my temper last week at my kids or some friend, if I lost my temper last week, how could God possibly help me now? I've sinned. How can he help me? Or you might even be thinking, you know, I was jealous of someone yesterday, just one day ago. How can God help me today if I sinned yesterday? And you are right in raising that question because sin is a serious problem. But the beautiful thing is that God sent Jesus, and when Jesus died on the cross, he paid for the sins of all those who would trust him. So because you're trusting Jesus, you are forgiven. And if you are sorrowful for that and thanking Jesus for paying for that on the cross, you can be assured that you are standing in God's grace right now. So you're not over here standing in God's judgment where he's saying, you got a problem and you are in big trouble and I hope it works out. Okay? You're not standing in God's judgment, you're standing in God's grace which means that God is ready to help you. If you could see big God standing before you, he's there full of grace. He's saying, I'm ready to help. Oh, you got it. You've got a problem. I'm ready to help. I'm ready. So that's the first truth. God's ready to help because we're standing in his grace through trusting Jesus. Don't make the mistake of thinking, okay, I sinned, I did that. I've got to do this good thing and this good thing and this good thing. And maybe if I do these good things, I'll move from here to being over here. No. By faith in Christ, you're standing in grace, and God's ready. Second truth, God is in sovereign control of everything. Everything. Abraham's servant prayed, God, have the woman you've chosen for Isaac 
when I ask her for water, have her offer to water all my camels. And what does God do? God has Rebecca come out. God has her be willing to give the servant water. And God has her offer to water all the camels because God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over what Rebecca does. He's sovereign over everything. Here's Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart, or Rebecca's heart, or your boss's heart, or your husband's heart, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it wherever he will. God is in complete sovereign control. So as you are facing this problem, understand God is in complete control over your health. God is in complete control over your work situation. God is in complete control over your future. He knows exactly the, the steps that would be best for you to take. God is in sovereign control over everything. So not only is God ready to help you because you're standing in his grace through Jesus, not only is he ready to help you, He's also able to help you because he's in complete control of everything. He's totally able to solve and deal with the problem that you're facing. Not a problem for him. He's sovereign over everything. Third, I love this one. God has so much love and so much power that he's looking for people to help. Look at 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9. It's one of my dad's favorite verses. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. God's looking for people to help. See, God's never too busy. Just a moment. I've got five other people or five million other people in front of you in line. No, see, God's never too busy. His to-do list is never too long. God has so much love and so much power he wants to help more people than he is. He's looking for people. The eyes of the Lord are moving throughout the earth so that he can help more people whose hearts are completely his. So think of that problem that you have. God is standing before you. There's the problem. God's before you. We've seen that God is ready to help you because of what Jesus did. You're standing in his grace. We've seen that God is able to help you because he's completely sovereign over your problem. And now we see that God is eager to help you, excited to help you, loves helping you. That's the third truth. And there's one more. Fourth, God gives what is good to those who ask him. Matthew 7, verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, God is always standing before you. Whenever you're facing a problem, he's right there. And we've seen that he is ready to help you because you're standing in his grace. He's able to help you because he's sovereign. He's eager to help you because he has so much love and power. He just loves to help more and more people. But he's waiting. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for you to ask. He's waiting for you to pray. Why would he wait for us to ask? Why wait for prayer? It's because when we pray, 
it is so good for our souls because it humbles us, right? The humblest people are the happiest people in God. Okay? When, when, when we ask, we are humble before God, so it humbles us and it glorifies Him. Humbles us, glorifies Him. God has chosen to work in response to, to prayer. This humbles us, this glorifies Him. So if you've got a problem, here's the picture. God's before you, massive, creator, sovereign, powerful God. And He is ready to help you because of what Jesus has done on the cross. He is able to help you because he is in sovereign control over everything. He's eager to help you because he has so much love and power. He wants to help more and more people. And when you pray, he will help you. He will help you every time. What does this mean for us? Let me give you two takeaways. First, see your biggest problem and trust Jesus to save you. It, it would be very wrong of me if, 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 you, if you left today and if you, if you don't yet know that you're forgiven through Jesus, if you don't yet know that you're trusting him, if you haven't yet come to the place where you are, are a follower of Jesus because you've trusted his payment for your sin, if I, if I let, let you leave thinking, okay, this was all about how God's going to solve my... I've got problems like health and work, and, and God's here to help solve my problems. That would be tragic because I would have neglected to tell you about the biggest problem. Because as big as these other problems can be, and, and they can be big, they can be heartbreaking, they are nothing compared to the sin problem we have all had. This is massively more important. And the beautiful news of Jesus is that in his death on the cross, God has taken care of your biggest problem. And this is the most important thing for you to focus on. If you're not yet trusting Jesus Christ, this is what is most vital for you to focus on, is that you have sinned against God like we all have. And God is just and you face his judgment forever being punished in hell because he's a just God. Now, he sent Jesus so that you could be forgiven, but unless you bend the knee, unless you humble yourself before God the Father and the Savior Jesus who he has sent, unless you trust Jesus to forgive you, to change you, to, to fill you, you won't be forgiven, you won't be changed, and you won't be filled. But if you do trust Jesus, if you right now trust Jesus to forgive you, he will all of your sins, past, present, and future. He will start to change you. You will experience his power changing you, giving you stronger faith, more love for Christ, changing you, and he will fill you with love and with peace and with joy in knowing him like you've never known before. That can happen right now this morning. That's your biggest problem. Ignore the other problems temporarily and focus on this problem. That's why you're here. Please. Don't ignore the biggest problem you have. God has taken care of that one as well for all those who trust him. That's the first takeaway. Second, for those of you who are trusting Jesus Christ, take steps this week to rely on God for your problems. Take steps this week 
to rely on God for your problems. Set aside time this week to pray and pray about it. Tell God all about it. Ask for his wisdom. Ask for him to work, to to do this, to do that. He knows exactly what's the best thing to have happen with that problem, the best way to bless you in and through that problem. He knows exactly, and he's eager, he's ready, he's willing, and when you pray, he will. So set aside time to pray, and, and then rely on him, depend upon him, trust in him. Be like Abraham's servant, okay? Don't be like Jacob. Be like Abraham's servant and humbly trust, wait on, pray, ask for God's help with this problem. And just like with Abraham's servant, God will work in your problem. He promises. One more promise. Psalm chapter 50, verse 15, where God says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. He might rescue you by taking you right out of that problem. He might rescue you while you're still in that problem. But you will say, God has rescued me. And he promises, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you, and you will honor me. Let's stand. I want to pray this over us. Father, we all have problems here. That's life this side of heaven. And I pray that you would work in each of our hearts exactly what we need this morning. I pray, Lord, for those who are not yet trusting Jesus, the Savior, your Son. I pray that right now they would see the massive problem they have of sin and the beautiful salvation you've given them so they could be forgiven for all their sin and restored to you and stand in grace. So I pray right now, Lord, that you would turn their hearts toward Jesus, humble their hearts, let them want you more than anything else, let them want you more than sin, more than anything else the world would have to offer, and let them trust Jesus right now. And then as they do, pour out your Spirit upon them. Assure them of forgiveness. Start to bring about change in their hearts. Fill them with your joy and your love. Save people in this room right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Then, Lord, for those here who are trusting you and who are battling significant problems, oh, God, we plead with you. Help them, Lord. Help them to be crying out to you. Help them to be relying on you, to be depending upon you. And then, God, we we pray Do a mighty work in them for the glory of your name. Give them the wisdom they need and the strength they need. And Lord, rescue them. Take them out of their problem. Rescue them as they're in their problem. Whatever you see best, whatever you know will bring them the greatest joy, do it, Lord. Meet them, help them in the problem that they're facing. Even let them this week see you working in powerful ways, we pray. In Jesus' name.